0: Chapter 8 of Wheeland, or The Transformation, an American tale by Charles Brockton Brown. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Karen Joan Kahodik, Octoberzine.blogspot.com. Chapter 8 As soon as evening arrived, I performed my visit. Carwin made one of the company into which I was ushered. Appearances were the same as when I before beheld him. His garb was equally negligent and rustic. I gazed upon his countenance with new curiosity. My situation was such as to enable me to bestow upon it a deliberate examination. Viewed at more leisure, it lost none of its wonderful properties. I could not deny my homage to the intelligence expressed in it, but was wholly uncertain whether he were an object to be dreaded or adored, and whether his powers had been exerted to evil or to good. He was sparing in discourse, but whatever he said was pregnant with meaning and uttered with rectitude of articulation and force of emphasis of which i had entertained no conception previously to my knowledge of him notwithstanding the uncouthness of his garb his manners were not unpolished all topics were handled by him with skill and without pedantry or affectation he uttered no sentiment calculated to produce a disadvantageous impression on the contrary his observations denoted a mind alive to every generous and heroic feeling they were introduced without parade, and accompanied with that degree of earnestness which indicates sincerity. He departed from us not till late, refusing an invitation to spend the night here, but readily consented to repeat his visit. His visits were frequently repeated. Each day introduced us to a more intimate acquaintance with his sentiments, but left us wholly in the dark, concerning that about which we were most inquisitive. He studiously avoided all mention of his past or present situation. Even the place of his abode in the city he concealed from us. Our sphere in this respect being somewhat limited, and the intellectual endowments of this man being indisputably great, his deportment was more diligently marked and copiously commented on by us than you, perhaps, will think the circumstances warranted, not a gesture or glance or accent that was not, in our private assemblies, discussed and inferences deduced from it it may well be thought that he modelled his behaviour by an uncommon standard when with all our opportunities and accuracy of observation we were able for a long time to gather no satisfactory information he afforded us no ground on which to build even a plausible conjecture there is a degree of familiarity which takes place between constant associates that justifies the negligence of many rules of which in an earlier period of their intercourse politeness requires the exact observance Inquiries into our condition are allowable, when they are prompted by a disinterested concern for our welfare, and this solicitude is not only pardonable, but may justly be demanded from those who choose us for their companions. This state of things was more slow to arrive on this occasion than on most others, on account of the gravity and loftiness of this man's behavior. pliel however, began at length to employ regular means for this end. He occasionally alluded to the circumstances in which they had formerly met, and remarked the incongruousness between the religion and habits of a Spaniard with those of a native of Britain. He expressed his astonishment at meeting our guest in this corner of the globe, especially as, when they parted in Spain, he was taught to believe that Carwin should never leave that country. He insinuated that a change so great must have been prompted by motives of a singular and momentous kind. No answer, or an answer wide of the purpose— was generally made to these insinuations. Britons and Spaniards, he said, are votaries of the same deity, and square their faith by the same precepts. Their ideas are drawn from the same fountains of literature, and they speak dialects of the same tongue. Their government and laws have more resemblances than differences. They were formerly provinces of the same civil, and till lately, of the same religious empire. As to the motives which induce men to change the place of their abode, these must unavoidably be fleeting and mutable if not bound to one spot by conjugal or parental ties or by the nature of that employment to which we are indebted for subsistence the inducements to change are far more numerous and powerful than opposite inducements he spoke as if desirous of shewing that he was not aware of the tendency of pleyel's remarks yet certain tokens were apparent that proved him by no means wanting in penetration these tokens were to be read in his countenance and not in his words when anything was said indicating curiosity in us the gloom of his countenance was deepened his eyes sunk to the ground and his wonted air was not resumed without visible struggle hence it was obvious to infer that some incidents of his life were reflected on by him with regret and that since these incidents were carefully concealed and even that regret which flowed from them laboriously stifled they had not been merely disastrous the secrecy that was observed appeared not designed to provoke or baffle the inquisitive, but was prompted by the shame, or by the prudence, of guilt. These ideas, which were adopted by Plyell and my brother, as well as myself, hindered us from employing more direct means for accomplishing our wishes. Questions might have been put in such terms that no room should be left for the pretense of misapprehension, and if modesty merely had been the obstacle, such questions would not have been wanting. But we considered that if the discourse were productive of pain or disgrace it was inhuman to extort it amidst the various topics that were discussed in his presence allusions were of course made to the inexplicable events that had lately happened at those times the words and looks of this man were objects of my particular attention the subject was extraordinary and any one whose experience or reflections could throw any light upon it was entitled to my gratitude as this man was enlightened by reading and travel i listened with eagerness to the remarks which he should make at first i entertained a kind of apprehension that the tale would be heard by him with incredulity and secret ridicule i had formerly heard stories that resembled this in some of their mysterious circumstances but they were commonly heard by me with contempt i was doubtful whether the same impression would not now be made on the mind of our guest but i was mistaken in my fears he heard them with seriousness and without any marks either of surprise or incredulity he pursued with visible pleasure that kind of disquisition which was naturally suggested by them. His fancy was eminently vigorous and prolific, and if he did not persuade us that human beings are, sometimes, admitted to a sensible intercourse with the author of nature, he at least won over our inclination to the cause. He merely deduced from his own reasonings that such intercourse was probable, but confessed that, Though he was acquainted with many instances somewhat similar to those which had been related by us none of them were perfectly exempted from the suspicion of human agency on being requested to relate these instances he amused us with many curious details his narratives were constructed with so much skill and rehearsed with so much energy that all the effects of a dramatic exhibition were frequently produced by them those that were most coherent and most minute and of consequence least entitled to credit were yet rendered probable by the exquisite art of this rhetorician for every difficulty that was suggested a ready and plausible solution was furnished mysterious voices had always a share in producing the catastrophe but they were always to be explained on some known principles either as reflected into a focus or communicated through a tube i could not but remark that his narratives however complex or marvellous contained no instance sufficiently parallel to those that had befallen ourselves, and in which the solution was applicable to our own case. My brother was a much more sanguine reasoner than our guest. Even in some of the facts which were related by Carwin, he maintained the probability of celestial interference, when the latter was disposed to deny it, and had found, as he imagined, footsteps of an human agent pleyel was by no means equally credulous he scrupled not to deny faith to any testimony but that of his senses and allowed the facts which had lately been supported by this testimony not to mould his belief but merely to give birth to doubts it was soon observed that carwin adopted in some degree a similar distinction a tale of this kind related by others he would believe provided it was explicable upon known principles but that such notices were actually communicated by beings of an higher order he would believe only when his own ears were assailed in a manner which could not be otherwise accounted for civility forbade him to contradict my brother or myself but his understanding refused to acquiesce in our testimony besides he was disposed to question whether the voices heard in the temple at the foot of the hill or in my closet were not really uttered by human organs on this supposition he was desired to explain how the effect was produced. He answered that the power of mimicry was very common. Catherine's voice might easily be imitated by one at the foot of the hill, who would find no difficulty in eluding by flight, the search of Wieland. The tidings of the death of the Saxon lady were uttered by one near at hand, who overheard the conversation, who conjectured her death, and whose conjecture happened to accord with the truth. That the voice appeared to come from the ceiling was to be considered as an illusion of the fancy the cry for help heard in the hall in the night of my adventure was to be ascribed to an human creature who actually stood in the hall when he uttered it it was of no moment he said that we could not explain by what motives he that made the signal was led hither how imperfectly acquainted were we with the condition and designs of the beings that surrounded us the city was near at hand and thousands might there exist whose powers and purposes might easily explain whatever was mysterious in this transaction as to the closet dialogue he was obliged to adopt one of two suppositions and affirm either that it was fashioned in my own fancy or that it actually took place between two persons in the closet such was carwin's mode of explaining these appearances it is such perhaps as would commend itself as most plausible to the most sagacious minds but it was insufficient to impart conviction to us as to the treason that was meditated against me it was doubtless just to conclude that it was either real or imaginary but that it was real was attested by the mysterious warning in the summer-house the secret of which i had hitherto locked up in my own breast a month passed away in this kind of intercourse as to carwin our ignorance was in no degree enlightened respecting his genuine character and views appearances were uniform no man possessed a larger store of knowledge or a greater degree of skill in the communication of it to others hence he was regarded as an inestimable addition to our society considering the distance of my brother's house from the city he was frequently prevailed upon to pass the night where he spent the evening two days seldom elapsed without a visit from him hence he was regarded as a kind of inmate of the house he entered and departed without ceremony when he arrived he received an unaffected welcome and when he chose to retire no importunities were used to induce him to remain the temple was the principal scene of our social enjoyments yet the felicity that we tasted when assembled in this asylum was but the gleam of a former sunshine Carwin never parted with his gravity. The inscrutableness of his character, and the uncertainty whether his fellowship tended to good or to evil, were seldom absent from our minds. This circumstance powerfully contributed to sadness. My heart was the seat of growing disquietudes. This change in one who had formerly been characterized by all the exuberances of soul could not fail to be remarked by my friends. My brother was always a pattern of solemnity, my sister was clay, molded by the circumstances in which she happened to be placed. There was but one whose deportments remained to be described as being of importance to our happiness. Had Plyel likewise dismissed his vivacity? There was but one whose deportment remains to be described as being of importance to our happiness. Had Plyell likewise dismissed his vivacity? He was as whimsical and justful as ever, but he was not happy. The truth, in this respect, was of too much importance to me, not to make me a vigilant observer. His mirth was easily perceived to be the fruit of exertion. When his thoughts wandered from the company, an air of dissatisfaction and impatience stole across his features. Even the punctuality and frequency of his visits were somewhat lessened. It may be supposed that my own uneasiness was heightened by these tokens, but strange as it may seem, I found, in the present state of my mind, no relief but in the persuasion that Pleyel was unhappy that unhappiness indeed depended for its value in my eyes on the cause that produced it it did not arise from the death of the saxon lady it was not a contagious emanation from the countenances of wieland or carwin there was but one other source whence it could flow a nameless ecstasy thrilled through my frame when any new proof occurred that the ambiguousness of my behaviour was the cause end of chapter eight